Welcome back, everybody. It's Dr. Stu's podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. And I'm here with my protege, Bliss Young. Uh, you can reach Bliss Young at birthingbliss at hotmail.com. That's right. You can reach me at askdrstu at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at drstuspodcast.com. You can uh, uh, like us on Facebook. You can find me at birthinginstincts.com and click on the banner. That's pretty much all the ways you can do it. We're going to start Instagramming one of these days. I have an Instagram account, Birthing Bliss. Birthing Bliss. And mm-hmm. so uh, if you want to reach the Bliss Serious one, you can call her at Birthing Bliss at Instagram or however it works. Call. Yeah, call me. Call her. Yeah, <laughs> see, see how much I know. Anyway, this is podcast number 128. And I'm grateful to be here today because yeah. just before, if people know how this works, uh, we generally record two podcasts back to back. And during the previous podcast, 127, my phone, my phone rang. But I didn't pick it up, but I just listened to the voicemail in between and realized that there's an arrest warrant out for me from the IRS. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just lucky to be here because the IRS is going to come and arrest me at any moment if I don't send a lot, of, take over. A lot of cash to somebody. And, and then, uh, you know, I don't have any cash left because I sent it all to this guy in Nigeria because <laughs> I knew for sure that I was going to become a billionaire because this royal guy in Nigeria had all this money locked up. And, it's coming. Right. And then I was going to sell my timeshare to this company, but but the the they wanted me to pay like eight or nine hundred dollars up front rather than rather than an escrow account. And so I, you know, I mean, again, there's I'm going off on a tangent, <laughs> but it's one of those things, you know, where you people. I mean, if you if you send out an email or a phone call like that, and one person in a thousand is dumb enough to think that the IRS would actually call them, right? And say you you know you know for this much money we'll get you out of this mess you're in right, and they'll send them money, yeah. And if they're in Ukraine or if they're in Nigeria or wherever they're from, you know, they 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 can't be extradited, they can't be arrested, they can't can't stop this stuff. I once had a friend of mine who was in law enforcement. I asked him about you know can we report this stuff, and he started laughing. It's like, well, who are you going to report it to? Yeah, right. You can't do anything about it. So I'm still here. They don't know where I am right now because John's address is secret. We have a secret <laughs> recording studio where we it's where like we the do this. Bat cave. We're we're actually in uh, Arizona right now. <laughs> uh, okay. Anyway, so we didn't get to a lot of the stuff in podcast number one twenty seven that I wanted to get to today. But before I do, there been Bliss has something she wants to talk about. But I have to I have to get something off my chest. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm not a big fan of the American Medical Association. As people know, I think that only 17% of physicians in the country belong to the American Medical Association. The American Medical Association um, makes most of its money from selling the coding. Yeah, the uh, CVS and, and ICD-10, whatever. Not CVS. <laughs> that's a pharmacy. <laughs> this ICD-10. No. ICD-10 and mm-hmm. the and the the procedure codes, whatever they're. I forgot what they're mm-hmm. called. The C. CVR, CVR. I forgot their code. Anyway, their procedure codes, and then the ICD-10 diagnosis codes, mm-hmm. and that's how they make most of their money. So they're not even responsive to their membership anymore. But occasionally they put out a statement that I agree with. So then I must have to. My cognitive dissonance says I will accept them as a legitimate organization. Recently, they put out a statement that says that due to EMR, which has become almost universal, except for Dr. Stu. <laughs> who still uses paper. There's a few of you still use um, paper. That doctors spend 52 hours a year logging on. Yeah. <laughs> so t- I told you this yesterday, and what did you say to me? 
I thought you meant that they were on the computer for 52 hours. I thought that wasn't that long. You said that doesn't sound so bad to me. Yeah. And I said, no, no, it's not how long they spend on the computer. They spend 52 hours a year sitting on their thing, filling in their ID and password to log on. And in a lot of, in a lot of the EMR systems, you know, if you don't type anything for a minute or three minutes mm-hmm. or five minutes, you're logged off. Like at hospitals, especially. Yeah, because they privacy. Yeah, they don't want yeah. you to leave an empty uh, yeah. uh, screen up, mm-hmm. so they they log you off. Yeah, and then you walked off, you walked off to go to the bathroom. You come back, you got to log on again. <laughs> All right, and then there's a glitch, and then you mm-hmm. typed your password wrong, and so 52 hours a year of absolutely doing nothing but sitting in front of your computer waiting for it to boot up. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So why do I believe them? Because I don't believe much else of what they say. Because it just actually, that to me makes sense. And what I often say is that even from an unreliable source, if what they tell you seems to fit with what common sense would dictate, it's probably true. And, even, and from a reliable source, supposedly like the CDC, right? right? if they tell you something that doesn't quite ring true with your common sense meter, uh, it probably isn't true. And I have some stuff to, pres- uh, to talk about with the CDC, but... I'm deferring to the blisterious one who's going to give us, uh, she has some things she wants to talk about, I think. Oh, I just, I just thought um, a lot of people don't know how we work together, so I thought it would be interesting just for people to understand a little bit about... Well, you bust up women's vaginas and I come and fix them. Stu, <laughs> <Dude>, that's <laughs> horrible. It's not true. No, it's completely Only not one true. time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so... I hope people at home understand that, that that's our humor and that, that I'm <laughs> not serious about that. So please don't write in that I'm a... I'm a uh, what do you call it? Massages. Chauvinist pig. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was from the previous podcast. Is what he's talking about. Um, well, if they haven't listened to the previous podcast, they don't deserve to be listening to this podcast. Noted. They're Duly to, noted. Because, because I'm OCD and I listen to podcasts in order. Oh, I don't. I, I just search what's interesting to me and then I, I look at that Well, one. that's why I try to create titles that are sort of yeah. fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> um, we'll see what the fascinating one is for this one. So... Um, Sometimes I join you as your assistant. So I meet them at 36 weeks, um, and then I attend the delivery with you as your assistant. Sometimes you um, are hired as the Dr. Stu on the couch package. So clients are, are primarily my clients, and then they would like to have you there as a just-in-case. So we have several kind of overlap um, in that regard in the coming up. Um, and then like, uh, we have a client coming up soon who is a persistent breach. And so we were lucky enough to be able to secure you for that delivery. So, um, you'll be joining us or women who might go past their dates. That's another time when you might join us later. Um, and it wasn't necessarily something original, but you and I have been talking lately about maybe creating a new package where, um, it's kind of like they're getting the best of both worlds and they get to have you um, involved in their prenatal care as well as myself um, involved in their prenatal care doing home visits. Um, I think that would be great because, again, yeah. I, I've always emphasized I think the, the collaboration between midwife and physician gives the best care. Yeah. And I do believe that midwives probably do a better job at prenatal care, mm-hmm. certainly postpartum care, uh, than obstetricians do. That'll lead me to one of the uh, uh, the next article I get to. We'll talk about ACOG's new recommendations for postpartum care for doctors. So yeah. it's a good thing. That's a, it'll be a good that. segue. But um, 
All right. Well, we can get into that. We keep. Yeah. Fin- well, let me just find it first because it's buried here in some place. <laughs> and you and you uh, pretty much always leave the postpartum care to us. You come and visit as a social visit, but pretty much the midwives that work with you do. Yeah, do I do. Our I usually do care. one postpartum visit, mm-hmm. and it, and when I do, I'm usually just sitting there. Are you filling out paperwork? Filling out paperwork, mm-hmm. that's right. Birth, Kissing birth certificate babies. stuff, holding babies, <laughs> taking nice pictures, and, and you know, just debriefing a little bit with yeah. the birth, sometimes talking to the dad a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, most postpartum visits are about poops and peas and and uh, latching and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And Emotional. Yeah, well, I can mm-hmm. probably do some of that, but not mm-hmm. as well as most midwives can mm-hmm. because it's, you know, I do have, I always say I have, I'm a guy and I have guy energy and... And, you know, that stuff isn't my strong suit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably stronger than many of my colleagues' Agreed. suit. It but is. it's not my strongest suit. And yeah. most midwives will do that far better than I. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. If, midwi- if you're working as a team and the midwife is better at dealing with breastfeeding issues, why should I? Right. And there's a lot that we normally do in our care to set people up for a good postpartum period that I think when we're just showing up for the delivery that that some of that stuff gets missed. So I think in, in combining this together, um, they'll get the best of both worlds. I think it'd be great. Yeah. yeah. So in the latest, uh, edition of, uh, uh, ACOG putting out a statement that has been something that midwives have been doing for centuries Yes. and then patting themselves on the back, like <laughs> little Jack Horner. Didn't he sit in the corner mm-hmm. eating his P- pumpkin? Wait, who's the one that who's the one that stuck his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, "What a good boy am I?" Who's that yeah. guy? Oh, that's Jack Horner. Yeah. Well, who's the guy with the spider that sat it beside her? <laughs> well, that's little Miss Little Miss Muffet. Yes. Okay. <laughs> God. Wow. You know when you, don't have, when you don't have newborn baby, when you don't have little kids, you forget the fairy tales. Yeah. I'm mixing them up. Yeah. Oh my God, this is really bad. <laughs> I need to start going to Disney movies again. You're gonna have a grandbaby at some point. At some point, yeah, mm-hmm. and then I'll be able to remember uh, mm-hmm. if it, if it's good night moon and good night spoon or, <laughs> 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 or or I love you this much or or I don't know what are this one I don't know whatever Dr. Seuss's sleep book was my favorite by the uh-huh. way. Yeah. Right. Okay, postpartum. So what do they recommend? Uh, okay. That we've so, known forever. So this is an article um, based on uh, ACOG's new recommendations. Sweeping, sweeping new recommendations, according to this, <laughs> from the from the American College OBGYN, that doctors would see new mothers sooner and oh, more yeah. frequently, mm-hmm. and insurers would cover the increased visits. Right. Yeah, like that's going to happen. Okay. So, uh, what they say is doctors would see new mothers sooner and more frequently, insurers would cover the increased visits under sweeping new recommendations from the organization that sets the standards for care of obstetrics and gynecologies in the U- United States much to my chagrin, I might add, mm-hmm. that they set the standard. But somebody has to, I guess. They like standards. <laughs> they have to have standards. The problem with standards and regulations is it doesn't really, it, it, it may solve a small current problem, but it creates larger and bigger problems downstream. This is what happens when, when you have a stage one thinking type standard, which says we're going to do it this way. All right. Mm-hmm. But then... If insurance companies aren't going to pay for it, then doctors aren't going to follow it. Right. And insurance companies pay for it, then doctors will probably abuse it. All right. They'll 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 do more of that. Gets back to the. I mean, I still remember when when newborn babies at the hospital didn't have to be see a pediatrician. 
they were seen by the nurse, and if the nurse thought the baby was fine, the pediatrician never saw a baby in the hospital. This right. is going back before the 80s, like 70s, 60s, 50s. Um, seeing pediatricians in the hospital was created by pediatric departments at hospitals when, at the time when private practice was still rampant in the country, and they, they saw it as uncaptured revenue. Mm-hmm. So they passed, po- passed policies that made all newborn babies had to be seen before they could be discharged by a pediatrician, and the pediatrician would come in for five minutes and do a cursory exam, get paid $300 for that, or maybe, right. 20, maybe, even 20, maybe even 15, 20 minutes, I don't care. But they, would get, they, would, they passed the policy not because of a need of babies having problems. They passed the policy for financial reasons. Right. Then 10 years later, managed care comes in and says, eh, we're not going to pay for that anymore. Or we're going to pay, you know, Medi-Cal is going to pay 30 bucks for that. All right. And so what happened is doctors are now stuck coming in to see babies for nothing because now there's a hospital policy that says they have to do it. Right. That they themselves put in place. Mm-hmm. And that leads to conflict, especially with the kind of people that we take care of who may deliver at six in the evening and want to go home at 10 o'clock at night. Right. And they can't go home because the policy says the pediatrician has to see the baby and what pediatrician is going to come in at 10 o'clock at night for 30 bucks. Right, exactly. So all these standards and regulations, they're, they're always something like they're, they're an immediate response to a problem, but they're not, they're, they're, they're like Band-Aids. Mm-hmm. They don't really solve the problem. The problem isn't that doctors need to see patients more postpartum. The problem is the whole culture of the way obstetrics is t- and, and women are taken care of in this country that actually even have to mandate such a thing. Well, that's that's exactly the point. Is that in other countries, our postpart their postpartum care is included. They come to their home, and it lasts a long period of time. In some countries, yeah. In other countries, it's worse all. than ours. In other yeah. countries, they're sent home and never seen again. But that's the best um, way of managing postpartum care is to actually do these visits in a mom's home because otherwise, she's got to get up when she's healing and try and go into a doctor's visit. And you've already said. You know, that obstetrics don't really know how to necessarily manage a lot of the things that are going on postpartum. Um, In this country, one of the maternal death rates has to do with going home and not having enough support and then having problems with hemorrhaging and bleeding infections, stuff like that. So in that respect, I think, you know, at least that's being managed. But if we could if we could have home care, that's really optimal. Right, and, you know, I, and I'm, and again, I'm, I'm just being my typical, you know, sort of cynical self when I say this is an 11-page opinion, and it brings together a lot of the stakeholders. That, that's a term that's often used, where they bring it to obstetricians, they bring insurance companies, uh, and and patients into this forum, and how can we improve postpartum care? Never once probably thinking maybe we should bring midwives into this thing, <laughs> right? And discuss how they've been doing it for centuries, right? It just it it doesn't enter their mindset, right? Okay, so their quote is the reason that they did this is to quote optimize the health of women and infants. Postpartum care should become an ongoing process rather than a single encounter, mm-hmm. with services and support tailored to each woman's individual needs. The committee opinion states, and of course I have a image of my mind of Homer Simpson going. Duh! You know, like, <laughs> that, uh, yeah, of course. Right. But this is the part that I, that gets me, is that this is what's been going on in the midwifery world forever. And ACOG will put a statement out this, and they probably all went out to dinner afterwards and said, you know, they're all toasting each other, saying how brilliant we are. 
Yeah. That if I was going to say that one one of my things that's my biggest pet peeves is that we keep doing studies and all of these things to validate what we've been saying forever, you know, we've seen that with delayed cord clamping, keeping mom and baby together, you know, it go, goes on and on and on. They have this thing about natural breastfeeding, which basically just means that you lay the mom back and put the baby on the breast and let them kind of figure it out. It's like, well, yeah, they don't have to be sitting up in a particular position with a boppy pillow. And you know what I mean? Like, that's not the only You mean you don't have nurse. to have a stopwatch <laughs> to time how long the baby's on each breath? The app now. That, oh, they have, that an app? They have a breastfeeding women, app now? Oh, yeah. Oh, when okay. Some women get obsessed about it, too. You know, it's like every single feed has to be monitored. And Well, I know they have a pooping and peeing app. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they have an app for everything. Okay. So let me ask a question about apps. Yeah. Right, I'm going to digress for a second. How do apps make money? They're free. Some apps are free. Some Almost all apps are free. Some some apps. All right, are free. so they, so they charge a dollar ninety five. Yeah, and then they a lot of times they have in app purchases, so kind of like upgrades, upselling. So they give you some things for free. It, do people actually do that? Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I am I, if, if whenever I get an ad uh, like YouTube or something like that, I, mm-hmm. it's a five, four, three, two, one, skip ad. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean, do yeah. people actually watch that? I guess they. They mu- it must work. I know it works. Yeah. Believe me, that's how Facebook and all these people are making a lot of money. But I just, I, it just seems f- wonderful. I mean, I, some of my best apps, like Waze. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could do one of my job without Waze. Yeah. In LA, we love Waze. Right. For sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never paid a penny for it. There's, there's, oh, ads on those. Yeah. But I, yeah. as soon as the ad comes up, you, you, you're annoyed and you flick it's it off. It's a little or dangerous. You, yeah. <laughs> right. Plus you're driving. Right. Right. Yeah, how do people make all these reports of accidents? They must be, are they passengers in the car? No. Or are they actually clicking on the little buttons to report an accident? They are. They are. You know, my EMR is an app, by the way. Yes. <clears throat> and I pay. But you pay a fee. You pay a monthly fee. I pay $40 fee. a month. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that app I understand perfectly. Yeah. Right. Do you spend 52 hours a year logging on? No, I was going to tell you, I've never <laughs> spent that much time logging on. And um, it's Mobile Midwife for anybody who's who wants to know. I love it. Um, she has no sh- stock in the company. I don't. Full they, disclosure. They can pay me now. No. Um, and the reason- they could, they could sponsor the podcast. They could. Right. And the reason I love it is because um, if we're at a place where we can't get Wi-Fi and we can't log in, because a lot of the other ones you have to log into the internet in order to kind of- get access to your client's information. Um, so it lives on my iPad and I can enter the information. The next time I have Wi-Fi, it uploads everything. So I don't ever, I'm never not without the information that I need and I can always enter the data that I need to. So it's really good. You should do it. I'm trying to <laughs> convince him that he doesn't want paper anymore. There's too much paper in the world. We need to we need to save some trees. We need to stop Yeah, but if you so send me a waste. copy of your records, I have to print them out. You wouldn't if you had the mobile same midwife. But what if I had a different had. interface? What if I had a different system? There's that a, some of them talk to each other. I, I think there's a lot of not. Commu- there's a lot of well, non-communication. Yeah. It needs to be better, but we're right. getting there. All right. So anyway, back to the um, back to the uh, ACOG guidelines for postpartum care. They go on. The CDC reports that more than half of maternal deaths occur after the baby is born. Right. Okay. Which is interesting. And again. CDC is one of those things like the AMA where I, I, I'm not always certain that the information they give is accurate. To me, this one sounds reasonable, so I believe them. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to their recommendations on measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine and the, all the scandal that went on with that, 
By the way, I listened to a great podcast. I wish I could remember the name of it. I could look it up. Uh, where the interviewee, the interviewer was interviewing Del Bigtree, who was the producer of the movie Vaxxed. Mm-hmm. It was a two hour and a, two and a half hour podcast. I'll try to put a link to it on the um, Dr. Sue's podcast um, website. Great. So people who look at this thing, it, it, it was really, really informative. And this guy who doesn't have any medical background, he was the producer of the doctor show on, the te- on television, one of the, one of the producers, and, and ended up producing this movie, Vax, and now has spent the last three years in- investigating this sort of stuff, is really sharp. Mm. So, mm-hmm, yes. anyway, the CDC says this about half of maternal deaths. I think that's probably true. Yes, I All right. agree. Um, they go on to say that, uh, they, quote, they quote this woman that says, this, this physician, she's right, she says, that the baby is the candy and the mom is the wrapper. And once the candy is out of the wrapper, the wrapper is cast aside. Mm-hmm. And that is a pretty damning statement. But I think yeah. that ultimately that's pretty true when it comes to the way the OBGYN is trained in antepartum, interpartum, and postpartum care. Mm-hmm. All right. That ba- once that baby's out, they see the mother on rounds the next day and send her home and see her in six weeks. Right. Right. And the baby isn't even the OB's responsibility anymore because Cor- the baby has... A pediatrician. A pediatrician. Correct. Mm-hmm. So let's see if there's anything more on that one. I don't think so. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, they said putting the reforms into common practice may take years. They say that. And that's probably true. And they say one of the biggest impl- impediments will be the insurance reimbursement. Come on, insurance companies! You got to get because on board. Because right now, insurance companies reverse this as a global part of a, as a global mm-hmm. thing. And if the doctors have it's global, then what doctors do with global fees is they'll they'll actually diminish the number of prenatal visits they do too. Why wouldn't they? Right. And the idea that if I'm getting paid a flat fee and a and a hospital mandates that because you're a VBAC or a breach, I have to be there and I can't charge more for being there, why would I want to uh, support you? And again. I know that ethically that sounds horrible, but economics and uh, and medical Lifestyle. legal concerns often mm-hmm. over over you know, they trump ethics for all of us. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we all compromise that sort of thing. Anyway, so I thought that that was pretty uh, pretty interesting story. Um, speaking of ACOG, all right, you know, last year maybe it was I think it was at the ACOG meeting last year they talked about how. What what about the idea of inducing everyone at thirty nine weeks? We talked about this. I don't right, know. we yeah. did. Okay. Mm-hmm. So since they had that fake debate uh, a year year and a half ago, um, suddenly there's been more and more articles coming out about the idea that inducing people at thirty nine weeks is a good idea. And I've heard I've heard my clients now saying that their doctors are recommending it. Right. Yeah. It's, which yeah makes me so. Cringe. Anyway, here's another article in support of the thirty nine week thing, and I just wanted to read some highlights from it so that we can add the, the bliss and stew spin onto the, um, the story. Okay, so they say that induction at 39 weeks reduces the risk of cesarean delivery by 16% and pregnancy-related hypertensive disorders by 36%. Now, they do admit that the numbers of, that when they talk about percentage changes, they're talking about a small change to a small number. Right. All right. Mm-hmm. So they admit that these are small numbers, but they're basically what they're saying is that inducing at 39 weeks was initially felt to probably increase the cesarean section rate. They always felt that induction and meddling was a bad thing. Here they're saying that actually in their study, there's no evidence of that. 
So also more encouragement for doctors to say to their clients, let's just induce you at 39 weeks, mm-hmm. right? Not explaining to them that the risks of going to 40 weeks or 41 weeks is still small. very, very small. Mm-hmm. And, that there, and there are benefits to waiting, which of course in this article, they actually deny some of those benefits as well. Um, the findings are at odds with the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists quote, choosing wisely, unquote, campaign, which recommends against elective induction of labor unless medically indicated. And that's sort of what has been going on for the last couple of years. As part of the lowering of the C-section rate, that's one of the things they came up with was that you you shouldn't induce anyone before 39 weeks and you shouldn't really be inducing anyone unless there's a medical... Yeah, but they're stretching what medical indication is. (laughs) I mean, I can't believe how many people are getting induced these days in terms of my hospital-based clients. It's, it's like, I would say more than two-thirds that conversation comes And how out. many of them actually are being induced for a legitimate problem as opposed to a, a lowish fluid problem or a baby getting slightly biggish problem? Yes, or a, those are usually... Or your placenta is getting oldish problem mm-hmm. or you're over 35 and therefore... Your high riskish problem, all the usual. I've had one induction in the last five years with my hospital-based clients that I actually knew there was a medical indication she had severe hypertension, and uh, they induced her at thirty-seven weeks. Um, and the induction actually went super well, but uh, the rest of them, I'm I'm just pulling my hair out. So, yeah. Yeah, well, it's like it's like the one I, I think I talked about in the last podcast where the woman had just a slightly little ditzel on her heart mm-hmm. and the doctor is going through just, basically, I think she's cutting and pasting the ACOG guidelines into her, into her recommendations. Mm-hmm. And never once at all thinking, all right, she talked about accredited birth center. We talked about that last time. The other thing I forgot to mention in that one is, as we have done, I think you were involved in it, why... Even if the baby doesn't have a major anatomic abnormality, but may have Down syndrome, mm-hmm. why is that a contraindication to birthing in any place you want? Right. It should always go back to woman's choice, informed consent and woman's choice. Right. If, uh, if Most babies, even babies with Down syndrome, don't require immediate attention. Right. And even if they require attention within the first 24 hours of life, there's no reason that she can't have the birth she wants. And if the baby, you know, most of us all have pulse oximeters now. At home, we can we can assess a baby. We don't live, you know, in Delzura, California, thirty five miles from the well, nearest Mexican hospital. Hospital. Um, so you know we're all close. So why why? But it, automatically, in the mind of a maternal fetal medicine specialist, it's that oh, your baby potentially this problem. This has to be done in a hospital. But nine times out of ten, or even much higher than that, none of those babies are going to ever need attention. So why does the birth need to be altered? It doesn't. Okay. <laughs> but they are covering their asses. CYA. Okay. So anyway, they said that uh, their results suggest that policies directed toward avoidance of elective labor induction in oliparous women would be unlikely to reduce the rate of cesarean section on a population level. To the contrary, our data shows that for every 28 oliparous women who undergo induction at 39 weeks, one cesarean section would be avoided. That's, the, that's their data. Whoops. Um, and the number needed to treat to prevent one case of neonatal respiratory support is 83. In other words, if you did 83 inductions, you'd prevent one baby from needing neonatal respiratory support. Now, neonatal respiratory support isn't necessarily, is sort of a broad 
category, does that mean a few puffs of, uh, you know, of a bagging or mouth to mouth, or does that mean baby going to the NICU and being on a respirator? I have no and, idea. Well, they don't really. Dis- they they basically call it respiratory support, and that's all they call it. So yeah, I have no idea how they can connect those two dots, though. Because they all. use com- they use what's called composite uh, risk, mm-hmm. and they can. Comp- I've talked about this before in some of the uh, breach studies. They use composite risk where they composite broken neck and bruised scrotum as as to be, you know, so that they can get the risk factors up to be enough to be statistically significant. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, this to me denies common sense. All right. I'd just like to put the reference down. So if people want to look it up, it's in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, volume, or 2018, January, uh, January edition by Grobman, G-R-O-B-M-A-N. If you want to look it up and see why they're doing this and how they're randomizing these people and, uh, you know, I don't even know. I'm sure they won't talk about the motivation for it. But again, this micromanaging of birth has never led to good results. Every time they do something, there are secondary consequences, whether it be going back to continuous fetal monitoring or the Friedman curve or the starvation of women or epidurals or all this stuff. We all know that they start out thinking it's a good idea and they're always wrong. Right. You know, they're we just need to wait for true medical indication and and only using these interventions when they're actually needed. And we're all stepping in more than we need to, I, I think. Undisturbed birth, that's when we have the least amount of complications. We should do a statistic statistical study on that. But you'd have to actually have undisturbed birth. Well, then would you randomize it. people into undisturbed birth and then birth where you purposely disturb them? <laughs> We're always disturbing them. I mean, the yeah, only but, people... but you have to define disturbing, all right? Is it... Right. Is, is, you know, some hospital births are more disturbing than others. Or home births. Home births too, but... Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I was talking to um, my assistant the other day about the delivery where we had the fourth degree tear, and I was really looking at it, and I was like, you know, maybe if I hadn't given her direction and pushing, maybe if I hadn't changed her position, maybe if she had really followed her instincts... Maybe that that would have been different, you know. And so, and she's like, "That's interesting to think about." Yeah, the problem with a study like that is is that there there could be ethical issues about it. I mean, because you know, I don't know how if if you let her do her own thing and and the baby and the baby ended up having a bad outcome, you got a good baby, right? Right. Yeah. Now, if you I hear one more person say, "Well, why? You, what are you complaining? You got a good, you know, you got a healthy baby. At least you got a healthy baby." That right. Drives people. It drives people like you and I crazy. Um, there is something to be said about that, though. Which part? The undisturbed birth part. Well, you 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 just presented a hypothetical. What if I would have left her alone? Mm-hmm. What if? I, yeah, mm-hmm. but what if you had left her alone and you ended up with a bad baby? Well, what I'm saying. How is... How do you do a study on that? How do you ethically put women in a category where where you're not? You know, you have to, you, 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 it's, it's almost a study that would be impossible to do. But what I'm pointing to is only acting when there's a medical indication. And directing a woman to push is not even a medical well, indication unless you're having D-cells. True. On the other right? hand, on the other hand, you can just look at, I mean, there are studies that are, have done that. They don't control specifically for those issues, but you just look at the C-section rate in the manistats mm-hmm. versus C-section rates in the hospital in right. low-risk women. right. And they're two to three times higher. And they did one recently with um, free birth 
people who are, are don't have anyone attending their births compared to um, when midwives are there. And even then, you'd think that there would be more issues, more losses, and they actually didn't. So that's surprising. I can get you the statistics. Maybe we can talk yeah, about it in a you, future you, podcast. How much, how many, do you know what percentage of the free births were multiples? I'd, I'd, I'd have to look up the study and I'll bring it in. Because there, there, there is, even in my own experience mm-hmm. with, my own, with my own statistics that I've been compiling for the papers that I've been working on, uh, there's a significant difference between primips and multips. Right. Right. But, you know, when we give counseling on women about, you were talking about the study in Canada and the breast, um, the mammograms and all of that, and that it didn't actually impact and improve outcomes. And if, so, if your outcome, if your final outcome was death, it didn't, right. it didn't change anything, right. right? So this is kind of the same thing. It's like you'd expect that if there's an attendant there, we'd have better outcomes. And in this, in this particular study that they did, it didn't. So that's, you know, it's like it points to that the more that we really respect this uh, physiologic, natural experience that's happening and only step in when we can actually point to a real issue rather than a fear or a projected issue, you know? Um, I really do think that we get better outcomes that way. The more we can just let it be. So that's my soapbox for today. Okay. <laughs> that's one of many soapboxes for us today. Uh, okay. Well, so I have a, I have a thing, uh, just a quick comment that um, uh, one of my clients sent me the other day. She's a VBAC and she wants to have a home birth, mm-hmm. but she's also very OCD and she's doing her due diligence to contact your insurance company to find out whether they're covered or not. And they said, well, if you have an OB at your delivery, it's covered. Mm-hmm. But if you have a midwife at your delivery, it's not covered, which right. I find to be totally unfair. Right. All right. But she also said <coughs> that the first sentence that they gave her in the when they sent her the information was that uh, about home birth was that they encouraged her to reconsider. Her insurance company. Yeah, Cigna. Mm-hmm. The first sentence is out of in, in their information on home birth is to reconsider not having it. <laughs> I still don't understand why they don't get on board because it's actually cheaper for them. Yeah, it's because they take their information from organized medicine. I mean, the, who's on their advisory boards? Yeah, but if it really is about business, wouldn't they want to save money? I think that they have risk, would they be they, held they liable? Have risk, they have risk managers that just look at it the other way. Crazy, and you know, for all we know, there there are back deal rooms with with with. Keeping reimbursement low as long as they continue to pay only for hospital birthing, that sort right, of thing. Right, Who knows? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But they also said that home birth would only be covered if it was a singleton. Yeah. And if it was head down. Yeah, she told me this. Oh, you spoke to you know, this is Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. this is a client we're right. doing together. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so <clears throat> anyway, should, so I'm just thinking about that. I'm saying, okay, so you have cubicle workers in Connecticut and big shot you know executives in probably New York who are telling who are coming up with policies that dictate how a woman should be cared for and isn't that I know that this is it's not it's rhetorical but isn't that practicing medicine without a license uh, totally 100% right. don't they need 4000 hours they should get 4000 <laughs> hours of uh, of uh, how to cut hair before they, you know, I mean, they're telling a woman, they're giving her medical advice, and they're restricting her choices totally. uh, as to what she has access to. Insurance companies shouldn't, I mean, they do this and everything, mm-hmm. but I, I understand they give a discount for good driver discount, right? But they can't tell somebody who's driving that, you know, 
I'll only pay if if you drive this kind of a car mm-hmm. or you know that sort of thing. I mean, they can, but but not only pay. They can charge. They you know if somebody wanted to have a breach home birth, all right, maybe the insurance party could charge a stipend, not a stipend. Uh, what's it called? Uh, where they they charge extra. Yeah. All right, but to say that they're not going to cover it, it just bother. It just it just. It it's bo- wrong. It's yeah. actually wrong. Right. Yeah. It's it should not be that way. When we when I was running the sanctuary, that was a big thing. Then when we were looking everything up, is they said because I didn't have my license at the beginning, um, that I couldn't make any medical decisions. You know, even though I was the owner. So it, we had to be very very clear that the people that were making the medical decisions were the ones that held the license, and I was not to do any of that. So it really does frustrate me when we talk about hospital administrators and insurance companies who are now dictating choice and what can and can't be done versus the You know what they the need? Uh, the insurance companies need at the bottom of a letter <clears throat> is they need like a, a little video of the guy that talks really, really, really fast at the end of like a <laughs> pharmaceutical commercial <laughs> mm-hmm. on television. Mm-hmm. You know, and says, you know, the act. This is an actor, not a, not a, not a physician, and blah 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 blah. And you might have bloody diarrhea, and blah 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 blah, <laughs> and on and on. So, an actual, disc, you know, disclaimer. But I mean, this is just—it's one of those things that just drives me. Yeah, <laughs> it drives me crazy. Yeah. So I, I have, we have one more topic that we can cover, and I have things about eating placentas, or I have the, the new Canadian study on um, VBAC, which I think I'll save for the next one because that's—I don't think we have time for that. The Canadian study on yeah. Okay. Yeah, the Canadian right. study on um, mode of delivery after previous cesarean section, which is a new study coming out, which ultimately says the risk of VBAC is, it, it doesn't really change anything that we don't already know. Mm-hmm. But you're going to see headlines that say VBAC is more risky than repeat C section mm-hmm. because in certain aspects of it, it is, but we're talking about an actual risk that is tiny. And a relative risk that's slightly greater. So again, this is one of those Dr. Stu moments where I talk about relative risk doesn't mean anything unless you know what the denominator is. Mm-hmm. But headlines, it gets back to the research by press release that I talk about. And for people who want to know more about it, Jen Camel on her VBAC Facts website breaks it down really well. I think we'll save that for a future podcast. Okay. So last thing, I mean, I have like a whole other pile of stuff here, but I think we'll get to... Um, eating eating placentas because everybody uh, who's listening to Dr. Sue's podcast can't wait to hear more about eating placentas. We actually have a <laughs> podcast early on with my old pal Brian Whitman where we talked about uh, uh, eating eating placentas and uh, people can look that back up. It's one of the earlier podcasts and it's pretty funny because Brian is a layperson and he just went went uh, you know off on it. I had a, a dad at a, a recent delivery that you know, really had a huge problem with the placenta. He could not wait for us to get it out of the space. He was just like, okay, when, can we cut that now? I'm like, can I stop the bleeding first? Can we like do that in a little bit? And what was his thing? He just, he just did not, he just didn't want it around. He wouldn't uh, let her eat it. Did he know that before it came out or was it, or, or, or you didn't really talk about it until he just was looking we, at I it? I mean, they declined me processing their placenta. Um, and so I kind of knew a little bit, but I really got a, a, a taste of why. Once. Okay. So here's a study uh, with, uh, you know, out, uh, using the Manistats mm-hmm. because Melissa Cheney is uh, one of the, is a second author on this and it's called Placentophagy. Mm-hmm. Pl- placentophagy? Placentophagy. Yes. 
Is it placentophagy? Yes. Okay. Among women planning community births in the United States, frequency, rationale, and associated new outcomes. And the purpose of the study was obviously to respond to the CDC recommendation that you shouldn't eat your placenta anymore because one case, case of possible contamination mm-hmm. with um, a bacteria called B-strep, well, well, beta-strep, basically. <laughs> it's got a long name to it, but it's, yeah. it's GBS. Yes. And uh, there was one case. Yes. So I always ask myself, when the CDC makes a blanket recommendation when there's one case of something that goes bad, how come we can do anything in the United States? How come anything gets how come done? They, how come they support vaccines? Right. How come they support hospital-based vaginal delivery? How come they support anything? I mean, there's far more than one case. And you know what? This, this, is, this is an interesting statistic. This, was, this quote was attributed to Stalin. Mm-hmm. But he said, one death... Is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. A million deaths is a statistic. Because mm. we can't grasp our minds around large numbers right. of uh, bad outcomes. Right. So when there's one bad outcome, you see politicians and government agencies scrambling to fix it out. Like, like six people get listeria, you right. know, or a few people got measles at uh, Disneyland. Right. That's an hysteria. But a nationwide thing now, at least now they're facing things like the opioid, opioid epidemic and other things like that but for in general a lot of those things go under the radar because they are just a t- statistic right. you can't grasp the immensity of it mm-hmm. um, that's why a lot of uh, movements will will take one incident and make it their flagship incident you know for for police for police brutality it could have been the Trayvon Martin, I mean, not the Trayvon, the Ferguson thing, mm-hmm. or it could have been going back even back to the 80s. It could have been the Mumi Abu Jamal uh, murder trial uh, for those people anti or, or who are anti uh, or, or, or pro borders. I shouldn't say because they're not anti immigration there, but they're pro borders. You know, they look at the uh, Kate Steinle incident in San Francisco where the poor girl was shot on the pier mm-hmm. by a homeless man who'd been deported. Not a homeless man, an illegal alien had been deported five times previously mm. for felonies and came back. And so they take the one thing, you know, you can't grasp your thing. So that's the, the whole thing is that the CDC went nuts on this one case. Or there was one bad case of something that happened at a water birth right. a few years back. Mm-hmm. And so all, suddenly all hospitals took out all their tubs. Unfortunately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, um, I actually did a uh, video with um, Ivy, who's a doula here, about this exact topic. So if people are interested in, in hearing more about... Is that Ivy Jova? Uh-huh. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, Hi, Ivy. <laughs> and it's on, my, it's on my Facebook page, my Birthing Booth's Facebook page, so they could find that video if they want to know more information about um, my thoughts on that. But yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. I, I process... Well, the fact that we need to study so. too. But, but again, when you have the CD something out, it's, uh, these are the studies that I sort of like. They come out and they look at things scientifically as opposed to the CDC, which is supposed to look at things scientifically. They're supposed to be the, ar- the final arbiter of, of what's good science and bad science. Right. In this case, they're not. Nearly one-third of women consume their placentas of the home birth people. So that's a smaller the number than, than we think we have here in LA. Yeah, for sure. Right. Two-thirds for sure. Consumers <laughs> were more likely to have reported pre-gravid anxiety or depression compared with non-consumers. Mm-hmm. So it was probably more suggested that they do it when they have a history of psych- psychological disorder, depression, or previous postpartum depression. Yeah, and I think those women are really open to t- trying things because they've, they've 
had the history, so they want to do whatever they can. 85% of the mothers ate the uh, encapsulated form, mm-hmm. and the other 15% were probably raw, raw or mm-hmm. smoothies or frozen or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, That's all considered raw. Right. Yeah. The new study, which examined birth outcomes and newborn risk, as well as how women consume their placentas and their motivations for doing so, contrast with the recent CDC prevention report recommending against placental f- plac- placentophagy. Mm-hmm. God, that's a tough word. It is a tough word. I'm going to let you um, do it. <laughs> and they say, they go on and say that, interesting, because the lead author says, our findings were surprising given the recent guidelines recommending against placental consumption. I don't know why it's surprising. I mean, I hate when, when the authors say something like that. Why do they think the CDC did anything scientific? I guess they just have this faith Ass- in the CDC. Assume, yeah, yeah. Uh, these new findings give us little reason to caution against human maternal placentophagy <laughs> out of fear of health risks to the baby. While the study found no risk to babies, it did not examine impact on postpartum mood disorders. So the study was not designed to see if it was effective mm-hmm. in anything other than is there risk to a baby? Yeah. And um, the other thing that it was been talked about lately is that there was, um, it wasn't even a study. It was just uh, lactation consultants kind of coming out and talking about a couple lactation consultants coming out and talking about that their experience was that it would diminish milk supply. And so I think that conversation is out there too. And, and women are questioning it. Because Has that been that. your experience? Not at all. Never. I've never had um, a woman have diminished milk supply who's taken their placenta. It, it's usually the opposite where she has an abundance of milk from, from taking her Yeah, because placenta. that's, I mean, again, I am looking at anecdotal stories from the midwives that I work with, and that's mm-hmm. what most of the midwives say. So it's interesting. And again, I don't know how you study things. I don't know that you have to study everything. Right? I don't think so. I, well, Common you, sense. You and, again. I mean, again, I, I said that in a negative. I said it in a funny way. Yeah. I know that. I know you don't have to study everything, <laughs> because stu- is, is a famous mentor of mine said studies either prove what common sense would dictate or they're wrong. Right. <laughs> That's pretty much true. <laughs> well, okay, Bliss. This has been another uh, enlightening afternoon. Uh, it's been appreciate you being here with me. Yeah. Thanks. So for, for Bliss Young, me. this is Dr. Stuart Fishbein and podcast number one twenty eight. Uh, you again can find us on iTunes. You can find us at drstewspodcast.com. Give us five stars. Uh, Facebook on, uh, at birthinginstincts.com, at birthingbliss at hotmail.com. Uh, we'll put up some links uh, to, the, to this and the previous podcast. It's always good having you. I wanted to um, say I'm looking forward to the four students who are coming from all over the country that I, that I taught in Hawaii to join me in June. Uh, so to Carly, Abigail, Grace, and Julie, look forward to seeing you uh, pretty soon. I should be, have great stories from Portugal where I'm going to be talking about uh, breech birth. And I'm on panels with some Portuguese practitioners to talk about VBAC in 42 weeks and informed consent. And I'm really looking forward to my time there. And then my daughter and I for graduation are going to go off to Morocco and have a really good time. That's so by the time this podcast, this podcast will probably be airing while I'm riding a camel. So... <laughs> So long, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.